Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Amen. Yo, can we give it up again for the worship team leading us into worship? And if you're like me and that just wasn't enough, well, take heart because in a couple of days, we're uh, going to be having another one of our first Tuesday experiences where we'll have a time to gather again for word and worship. Anybody excited about that again? Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing uh, our lead pastor, James, wanted me to make sure that I communicated is that this first Tuesday is going to be BYOB. Bring your own Bible. Yes, somebody's saved up in here. Somebody is saved up in here. Other folks was like, oh, is that type of party? <laughs> Bring your own Bible. And the reason why is there's not going to be slides that are going to be presented uh, at that point. So we do want you to follow along uh, in the scriptures, but please bring your own Bible. Um, another event that we have coming up is the Anne Campaign's Criminal Justice Reform discussion that we're going to have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have the privilege of being a part of the leadership council with the Ann campaign and its uh, national president, Justin Gibney, um, and working with uh, the NYC chapter uh, leader, who is uh, Rachel Atkins, our own uh, Rachel. Yes. Yep. And um, also, uh, yeah, so the Ann campaign is a movement that's really focused on living out both the convictions that we get from scripture. Um, as well as compassion and really combining biblical values and justice. Um, This is going to be an incredible event. We have an incredible lineup. Uh, Someone from Prison Fellowship, Jesse Lopez, Ashley Burrell, who's a uh, federal public defender for the East District of New York, and also uh, Pastor Ray Rivera, who, if you know anything about uh, Christianity in the city of New York, you know that he is a, an OG. Um, he literally, a few uh, decades ago, ended gang violence almost, you know, single, you know, just by bringing together different gangs in the city. Uh, the mayor's office routinely calls on him uh, in faith initiatives. And so he's definitely going to be somebody you want to hear from as well. So, yeah, please, we encourage you to uh, check that out. So as we're continuing this journey through uh, the book of John called Proclaim, um, we are now finding ourselves in a new chapter. And in this chapter, it reminds me of an event that took place in 1961 when uh, actually in 1960, the (laughs) Philadelphia Eagles beat the Green Bay Packers in a national championship. And the city of Green Bay at that point was pretty uh, despondent about it. And so they hired a new coach. And when this coach came, now again, this is a team that had just gone to the national championship, 1961. He comes into uh, the practice to these professionals and he holds up a football. And he says, welcome to practice. This is a football. It is made out of pigskin. It has stitching down the side. The object of this game is to get the ball from our side of the field to the other side of the field. 
Now, as you can imagine, right, these, these, <laughs> these players are looking at each other like, what, what does he think? And one of them actually says to him, okay, please slow down, coach. This is a little bit too fast for us. But what it revealed was that from that practice on for the rest of his tenure, Vince Lombardi would have an important and fundamental uh, teaching and emphasis on every single basic principle that came. And from that moment on, it would create a dynasty in which he never lost another playoff game in his tenure. And so sometimes, and I feel like when we go into John chapter 3, it can feel like something so basic. What does it mean to be born again? Like the majority of people in this room would be like, well, yeah, of course I know what that means. Of course, John 3.16, like I even, you know what I mean, I've seen that in the sporting events. Like I know this passage. And I feel like what Jesus is saying to us today is this is a football Sometimes, don't get so cute with wanting to understand the lofty things that we forget the basics. And in fact, oftentimes, if we don't really, we've never laid down the basics, then we might be building our houses on a faulty foundation. Can we go through the basics today? So you'll find me in John chapter 3, verse 1. There's another man that we're going to find that has to go back to basics. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, I would say there's probably not a group in the Bible that gets a worse rap than the Pharisees. I mean, we still to this day go, oh, you just being a Pharisee, right? You know what I mean? We use that as a lingo for being uh, legalistic. And, and yeah, they, 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 they had their issues, but, but we have to understand that at this point, there were essentially four major groups of Jewish leaders. There were the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the re resurrection, so they were sad, you see. I'm a dad, so I get to do dad jokes. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Bring it. They were, uh, they were aligned mostly politically with the Roman uh, government. And they were also in charge of the temple. Then you had the Essenes. These were the people who withdrew from Roman rule and authority and instead just decided to hang out in the deserts and just say, you know what, we're just going to wait here until Jesus comes back. You had the zealots who were like, no, we're going to take this thing by force. These were the revolutionaries in the mix that would stir up all types of insurrection. And eventually the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed because the zealots had raised up yet again another revolt. And Rome got tired of it in 70 AD and destroyed the temple. And then you had the Pharisees. These guys were, they, they were trying to live out, they believed the scriptures, unlike the Sadducees. They took it seriously, and they were actually trying to live out how do we lead the people and lead ourselves. That was, the, I was, the reality is of all the different groups, the, the ones that would kind of represent most of us in the room would probably be more of them. But not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, he was also a ruler of the Jews, which meant that they had a council called the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like their supreme court. It was a combination of both civic responsibility and religious and spiritual responsibility because Israel was a theocracy and they were kind of combined in those things. So this meant that this man, Nicodemus, had clout. 
And this is who John is introducing us to in this chapter. He had clout, but he also had a little bit of an issue. In verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, it's a couple things to kind of recognize here. One, John makes it very clear that Nick comes at night. Um, he comes at night because it's a shadow of darkness. Now, if you remember, if you were paying, if you were here last week, you realized Jesus had just turned over the temples and caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. There was, you know, sometimes people you can get kind of caught up with who people associate with, and you can get yourselves in trouble if you associate with somebody that those in your group don't think you should be associating with. Maybe that has something to do with why, you know, Nicodemus decides to come at night. But some would say that maybe he was just trying not to get into a public confrontation with Jesus and actually have a real conversation. But regardless of the case, it says that he comes to him and look at the respect and the deference that he gives. And if you know anything about the Pharisees, you realize that this is unusual. He he refers to him as rabbi, which is a, a, a really a gesture of generosity because, you see, Jesus didn't grow up in one of their schools. He didn't, he didn't have the credentials that, that the folks in Jerusalem had. In fact, they kind of referred to him as just this riffraff from Nazareth, from Galilee, up in another region in the sticks. And he was a kind of common folk because he was, his father was a carpenter. But he refers to him as rabbi and gives him some respect. And then he says, look, we recognize that you come from God because no one can do these signs that you do. He says, look, we, we heard about what you did at that wedding when you turned water into wine. And we, we saw what you did at the temple when you flipped over these things. And so we recognize, I recognize that God is with you. I'm giving you your props, Jesus. Nicodemus says. And Jesus' response is, is just quite humorous. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He just, go, he just cuts the small talk, right? He's like, yeah, I'm not really doing the dapping up thing right now, Nicodemus. Let's just get right down to business. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's like, you, you think you know some things, but I'm about to school you, teacher. Now, one of the things that you'll notice in this passage, it says truly, truly. This was something that was unique to Jesus and that we see frequently in the Gospel of John. And it was his way of, whenever he said truly, truly, something was coming that was a specific important point of emphasis. It was like he was saying, yo, for real, Nicodemus on period? (laughs) One, unless somebody is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like, Like this is... And a, a foundational point, this is a football. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this kingdom of God is a, it was a, a very robust concept that can't be just um, 
oversimplified into just making it into heaven. I mean, clearly there's an aspect of, 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 of salvation that he's speaking to by talking about being born again. But what he's also speaking to is he's saying, look, this kingdom that you're looking for, which everybody, all the Jews at this point, were, were waiting for God to, to come and bring about his, his new uh, kingdom vision. He was like, that, you can't even see this until you're born again. It reminds me of a song that we, probably one of the most known songs in the English language. If I were to start to sing, which I won't, but if I just were. <laughs> All right, I'm going to see how quickly it takes for y'all to come along with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Good, good, good. Look at that. Look at the choir. We got the full choir in the building. Now, the interesting thing about this song is that John Newton wrote it. And if you know anything about John Newton's background, he was a captain of a slave ship. Um, and he was what he would describe as a, a reckless, self-indulgent, drunkard, and someone who just lived for his flesh. He rejected anything having to do with Christianity. One day, the, the ship was looking like it was about to crash and uh, just kind of just capsize. And so he cried out like, Jesus, if you save me from this, I'll, I'll, I'll serve you. And the, God saved him from the wreckage, and he begins to follow Christ. And in the process of following Christ, becomes one of the most prolific uh, worship leaders in his time, but also Ironically, one of the most prolific advocates for abolition. In fact, he ends up writing um, a, a treatise describing the horrors of the slave trade and mentors a guy named William Wilberforce, who ends up being the person who spends 20 years of his public life in parliament working to overthrow the slave trade. So that last line, and at the end of his time, uh, toward the end of his days, John Newton became blind. And so when you hear that last part, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I'm, see, he's actually talking about his, his, his spiritual experience of being born again. I used to know what life was about. I thought it was all about myself, but now I realize I was blind before, and now even though I'm physically blind, I can spiritually see. He understood and saw the kingdom of God and, and the implications of that in his own life meant that he fought against the very system that he had helped build. That's what Jesus is talking about when he refers to the kingdom of God. See, being born again is necessary to see the kingdom of God. You can end up spending a lot of time trying to build up a system that Jesus is trying to tear down because you're not born again. Nicodemus then asked, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's like, uh, Jesus. Now, again, this is where we're kind of up against it right now because this phrase has become just such a cultural reality that we forget how crazy it sounds. But imagine being the first person ever to hear, oh, okay, you want to know who God is? You have to be born another time. 
<laughs> right? You got to try to say it different. Like you have to be born anew. You have to, like, this was like a, a new experience. And so Nicodemus with all of his learning and, and who is, maybe he's asking the question, not literally, but like, are you saying that is it possible that I can start over again? I'm kind of an old man, Jesus. Like, is that possible? Or maybe he's being cynical. Come on. What are you talking about? That, that's not even a reality. And this principle that Jesus talks about, this aspect of birth and being born, it, it's, think about it. This is one thing every, all of us have in common. We were all once babies. All of us. Matter of fact, I remember being a baby. You know, one of my favorite pictures. Uh, yeah, this is me and moms. You can see how old the picture is and... Get a picture, hey, 1977, that's how we were doing things back then. But, um, but here's the interesting thing about being a baby that we can often take for granted. We don't choose when we were born. We don't choose by whom we were born. And part of essential, when you go back to this earlier stage of life, if you have to learn everything, you're completely helpless. You have to learn how to walk. You have to learn how to talk. You have to learn how to eat. And Jesus is saying there's something basic and foundational about what this spiritual transformation is that can, I can only describe it as like being a baby again. So Nicodemus is like, I don't understand. And look at Jesus' response. Again, he's challenging. He says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus leans in again and says, look, i make this plain for you, Nick. You have to be born of water and of the spirit. And what, one of the things that Jesus is kind of confronting here is that people use the phrase born again Christian as if there's like multiple types. Like, like what kind of Christian are you? Are you like, you know, like a normal or regular Christian or are you one of those born again Christians? <laughs> Like them extra Christians, you know, them special, not in a good way Christians. And Jesus is saying here, I'm, I'm going to break it down for you as simply as I possibly can. You have to be born of water and of the spirit. Now, that phrase water uh, is many different people that talk about, is he talking about the physical baptism? But I actually think he's, when you look at the full context of the chapter, that he's referring to natural birth, right? Like when, when a woman gives birth, right before they give birth, what happens? Water breaks, right? And that's, and that's part of the process. And so he, what he's saying is that there has to be a natural reality and a spiritual reality that has to be joined together in order for you to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he first he talked about being able to see it. Now, for you to be able to enter it. And the reality of being born again means, contrary to the culture, God ain't got grandkids. You'd be surprised at how often, you know, especially when you're in ministry and, you know, working with people, you'd be like, oh, you know, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, my mom, she took us to church all the time. Like, my, you know, grandfather, my grandfather, he was a preacher. So, yeah. And it's like, this ain't like the club where it's like, oh, you know him? Then you can come in too. No. God don't got grandkids. He only has children who are born again. And so, and I noticed from my, and, and, and here's the other interesting thing about this concept of being born is that 
it's this aspect that much of it is, as much as you're making a choice, it's something that happens to you, right? Like babies don't get a whole lot. They don't have a big resume. And that was the exact opposite of how I had previously thought about what made me good. And so can I, can I just testify a little bit, tell you a little bit about how I got here, right? Because see, I was one of those, see, see people talk about religious people as being self-righteous, but I was a secular self-righteous person. Like those exist too, right? Like I wasn't, my self-righteousness wasn't based on the sense of any kind. I didn't go to church. I didn't pray. I didn't do any of those things, but I got good grades and I was nice to people and I was respectful. And hey, you know, that must mean that I'm better than the people around me that weren't trying to live that way. And that was how I saw myself until the Lord humbled me and showed me how judgmental I was and showed me that, wait a minute, actually, to quote a scripture, your righteousness is like filthy rags. And that I'm not impressed because the reality is, imagine if I were to say, hey, would you like a glass of water? You say, yes, I'm thirsty. You go, well, there's only one part urine in that, but the rest of it is pure. Do you still want it? And so the reality is even one aspect of impurity in front of a holy God is enough to be like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good with your resume. Being born again is necessary to enter the kingdom. So seeing that Nicodemus wasn't getting this, so then Jesus goes and explains some more. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So he brings this thing together and, and you can't see it in the English, but like, like Jesus got, got bars here. Like he's, he's doing wordplay because the word in Greek, spirit and the word wind is the same word, pneuma, like where we get pneumatology from. And he's saying that, look, you have to be born of the pneuma, the spirit, because the pneuma blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone that goes from the spirit. And, and the interesting thing about this is that when you think about wind, right, like wind, you can't see it. But if someone says, is it a windy day, you just look and see the effects of the wind. Right? You look out the window and you see the way the trees are blowing. In my neighborhood, you see the trash cans knocked down. Like, like you see the effects of the wind and you know that it's there. And he's saying, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Because the reality is, if you want to know if you're born again, look to see if the Spirit is blowing in your life. Is he blowing? <laughs> because if the stuff is the same that it's always been, if nothing's been rearranged or changed, then probably you're not born again. You're not born of the spirit. This, I love how Dr. Tim Keller puts it. He says, it's impossible for the omnipotent God to blow through your life and not affect you much like a tornado can't blow through your neighborhood and things stay the same because the spirit makes changes. Anybody here? Somebody know what I'm talking about. The spirit makes changes. Some of those changes you don't really want and prefer. Like, you're like, wait a minute now, all of a sudden, the stuff that I was doing before that I was completely fine with, now all of a sudden, I'm starting to feel like this weird feeling inside of me, and they're and they saying they have a name for it, they call it conviction? <laughs> like, what, that, huh? 
I remember being like, really, Jesus, you saved me like a month before freshman like year? Like I was ready to break the campus wide open, Jesus. Like, like then, right then. And it, Spirit makes changes. Being born again means the Holy Spirit resides in us. He says that those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Newsflash. We're all created by God, but not all of us get the right to be called his adopted children. And we get glimpses of the Trinity in this aspect because we see the spirit residing inside in us when we recognize the son whom the father has sent. So let's check back in with Nicodemus. Poor guy. He says to him, how can these things be? He doesn't even have like a, a, a solid like kind of, so when you say spirit or when, like, can you break that? He's just like, I don't, like, how could these things be? How is this possible? He's stuck right now. He, he, he doesn't understand how all of this can happen. And look, and then Jesus, once again, showing him all the sensitivity of a grand teacher says, answer him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Oh yeah, he's giving him all the smoke. Because you see, he's like, you guys set yourselves up as Pharisees and, 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 and these leaders, but there's these key foundations, this fundamental thing that you're missing. And the reason why he could say that is because he understood the scripture. And see, in Jeremiah 31, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but just take a note for later. There was this prediction and this belief that, yo, there's going to come a time where there's going to be this new covenant. And, and, and God said that he was going to replace their hearts of stone with a heart of flesh and that he would write the law on their hearts. And this was part of what it meant for the Messiah to come. And there's this expectation. He goes over to Ezekiel 36 and explains the same thing. And he's saying, look, part of the thing is you kind of gave me some props as a rabbi, as a teacher, but you're missing the point that I'm more than that. See, you study the word. I am the word. So Nicodemus still didn't put enough respect on his name. And so he had to kind of check him and go, look, see, oh, you think we peers. <laughs> like, you, you think like we on the same level. Don't you know I've revealed the very thing that you study? How do you not understand these things? And here's the basic thing that we can get stuck with. Because Nicodemus was like, well, I'm studied and I've gone to seminary and I, and I worship and I don't miss this, uh, a Sabbath and I don't miss a worship experience. And I am in church and this is where so many people get it twisted when they think about what it means that makes them a Christian. I grew up in church. But the question isn't, have you been in church? The question is, is the church in you? That's the question about being born again. That's, the, that's where the rubber hits the road. Because anybody can walk into a building, but have you had an encounter with the living God that causes your life to start blowing in different directions? That's what Jesus is getting to. Now, when I talk about things being shifted around, what, what, what we don't want you to hear is that somehow what we're emphasizing or is referring to is some type of legalistic thing that says, okay, you aren't good enough to be born again. No, that's not the question. That's not the issue. Because being born again doesn't mean that you're sinless. It just means that you should sin less. 
Should, I mean, so part of it is taking stock and looking inside of yourself and going, are you different? Like, are you changed? Like, is, if, it, if things have gone on the same way as before, then that's not the born-again experience that Jesus is referring to. So to give him another object lesson, he goes, okay, I got to do this a little deeper. All right. No one has ascended, verse 13, into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, if you were here during our Daniel series, you know, in uh, Daniel chapter 7, it was revealed that this, this spiritual, this mysterious person who was divine in that aspect but still also human was going to come toward the end of days and is referred to as the Son of Man. And he's saying, look, only person who's going up to the level, ascended, going up to the level of understanding and comprehending God is the one who came down from heaven. We saw in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came down from heaven. So he's given him an introduction to himself. This is why you're not catching this, because you don't know who I am. So you don't, if you don't know who Jesus is, you can't understand spiritual truth. You can't see the kingdom. But then he goes on. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Now, you might be looking like Nicodemus right now, like, okay, what that mean? Serpent, lifted up, wilderness. And, and, and in order for you to grasp this, you have to understand biblical history, and specifically in Numbers 21. This is what happened. Now, I did put this up so we could stick with Jesus when he talks about this. Numbers 21, verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now, the people of Israel at this point are in the wilderness. God has just rescued them from the Egypt, 10 plagues, Red Sea split. We've seen the movie Prince of Egypt, right? You know what I mean? People walk through. And right when they get on the other side, after the credits roll from Prince of Egypt, they, they're in the wilderness, and it says that they say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, just who are they addressing in this? Look, look at the text. Who are they addressing? Moses and God. It says they spoke against God and Moses. And their complaint is, you brought us up out of Egypt to die because there is no food, <laughs> And we loathe this worthless food. So they're not even being consistent right now because if there was no food, then how are you going to loathe the food that you got? But I, I was just imagining when I was reading, you know, because some of us that grew up in, under not the most ideal circumstances, right? Like moms put together what she could. It might have been beans and hot dogs. Could you imagine being like, why have you brought us up out of the womb, mother? I loathe this worthless food. Some of y'all just picture that, what would happen if you say that to your mom. So on another level, God sends fiery serpents to judge them. Oh, oh, you, 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 you hungry, huh? The food is worthless. Well, how about this? You'd rather die, huh? So he, send, so he sends these fiery serpents, and they start, the, the serpents start biting them, poisonous snakes, and they cry out to Moses, the one that they just rejected, to say, like, help us, Moses, help us, please. And in verse 8, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
oh man, I wish we had time to dump back this. So, so check this. So what happens is the people complain to the very people they were complaining about. And then God tells Moses to make a bronze image of a serpent. And that whoever looks at the serpent will actually be healed and delivered from the actual punishment and wrath of God. Now, the first question is, you would think serpents, why would that, like that was the very thing. What God is showing him is saying, okay, first of all, you have to make an acknowledgement. You have to admit, I'll die without you. What he's pointing to is the fact that as much as you're complaining about what you don't have, I am the one who's given you the very breath to complain with. Like, that's me. So you have to acknowledge that. But the second part here is that you have to accept that the punishment became your hope. You see, the judgment was that death should enter into them through the poisonous snakes that God had sent. And so then he sends a snake to, to actually rescue the people, to remind them of the fact that the wages of their sin was death, but that God had given them a way out of that death in order to be rescued. You see that? They had to acknowledge that. And, and so what Jesus is saying here is that this was just a foreshadowing. This was just a preview of things to come. You see, the wages of sin is death. What you deserve, every single one of us, is death for our rebellion against a holy God. But what I have done is actually sent one in your place to be the curse that you deserve. And I'm going to lift him up on a cross, and he's going to die for your sin. And the only thing that you could possibly do in order to be rescued is not try to work harder because you are dying from a poisonous snake bite. Not trying to be more popular, not trying to get more likes, not trying to make more money, not trying to be a good person. The only thing you could possibly do is look up to the cross and be healed. That's it. Because the venom is in our bodies. It's already taken root. And Jesus says, look, this is the element of what we have to understand, that there's nothing you can do, Nicodemus, there's not enough scripture that you can study. The only thing you can do is look to Jesus to rescue you. Do you despair against everything that you've experienced in your life, the people that have hurt you, the systems that have abused you, the shame and guilt that you have of the things that nobody else has seen and know, but you know what you did? And we can, are you trying to make that up and compensate by just showing up and, and being good. And what he's saying is none of that can work. This, the venom is already in your system. You're walking dead. The only thing to do is to look up to the cross. And then we get to what is probably the most famous verse in all of scripture. Let's say it together, might as well. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This verse kind of basically sums up the entire story. Now, and again, it's something that we can take for granted because this was a revolutionary idea at the time. People had no concept that the, the, the gods that people worshiped at this point were kind of like sports teams. That your local neighborhood was like, yo, we better than y'all and our fans are the best in the world. Like everybody's debating with each other. And here comes Jesus elevating the thing and saying, no, God loved the world, everybody, that he gave his son. He gave his son because, we, as we saw, there had to be punishment and there had to be the removal of the curse of sin. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
He goes on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We must look at the son. And this is a verse that oftentimes I feel like it's so tragic that it seems like Christians are known for being condemning to the world. And he's saying clearly here that the whole point of sending Jesus was not to condemn the world, but to actually save the world through them. And it reminds me, this transformation of what it means to be born again reminds me a lot of a young lady by the name of Denise. Denise came on the scene in the mid-80s as an artist. I thought about trying to share images of her born at time, but because she was known for her sultry appearance and sexually themed music, there was nothing that would be appropriate for me to actually reveal to you on a Sunday or any day. <laughs> just to clean that up. Just to clean that up. <laughs> now, she was so provocative that she ended up becoming a leader of a girl band during this time called the Vanity Six. Her name that Prince gave her was Vanity. You know why? Because he would look at her and see her ambition and her beauty and said it reminded him of himself. <laughs> so... Uh, Vanity became the it girl in the mid-80s. You know, if you saw the movie Purple Rain and all of that, like Vanity, you know, Last Dragon, Vanity. And what also happened during this time is that she just was living hard and experiencing all of what it meant to be a star during that time, which also meant drugs, sex, rock and roll, the whole nine. And she became addicted to crack cocaine. She, she would say in an interview later, I was sick inside. I was a crack cocaine addict and didn't even know how to wake up in the morning without smoking. She would later end up having this experience where she would um, overdose and she was dying. And as they were rushing her to the emergency room, similar to John Newton, she cries out, Jesus, if you save me from this, I'll serve you. Well, she's rescued and becomes what they refer to as a born-again Christian. This is what happened. This is how the Spirit blew in her life. She says, when I came to the Lord Jesus Christ, I threw out about a thousand tapes of mine, every interview, every tape, every video. She didn't want to be called vanity anymore. She wouldn't even respond to that name anymore because she said, that is not who I am. And as a result of that, she began to proclaim the Lord that she now lived for. Transformation. Tragically, she would Later, she had to, I mean, her drug disease had so ravaged her body that she had to get dialysis five times a day. And yet she still recognized the beauty and the power of what God had done. Don't you realize that being born again takes you from being vanity to an evangelist? Here's the simple version. God loved God gave, we believe, we live forever. God loved, God gave, we believe, we live forever.
And he extends that regardless of where you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of when you, where you've been. But the reality is the only thing you need is the one, people, one thing that people don't have enough of, and that is awareness of their need. We, we find ourselves so self-sufficient that we want to be like, I just need a little bit of Jesus to sprinkle along with all of my goodness. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You have to come with nothing, acknowledging that you have nothing. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to us, this is a football. This is being born again. This is the basic. This is the foundation. This is where everything else comes from. The beautiful thing is, even though Nicodemus was confused and he was struggling to understand who Jesus was at the end of this story. This is not the end of Nicodemus' story. We'll see him again in a few chapters, in chapter 7, when the Pharisees were getting upset and angry about Jesus, and he's the one that stands up and says, wait a minute, we should listen to this person. We should, we should kind of not hear him out before we judge him. They actually get mad at him. And there's a little glimpse that you get. He gets a little bolder. But then finally, in John 19, we see as they're taking Jesus's lifeless body down off the cross. It is Nicodemus who provides 75 pounds of perfume and oil to anoint his body according to the Jewish rituals. Publicly, during the daytime, no longer at night. And what that transformation looked like for him, it can look like for you as well. And this is an opportunity to respond to this message. We're gonna do something different uh, than how we normally roll. If you're here every Sunday, you know we typically do communion every Sunday. But because we want us to just sit into this question and wrestle with it on a personal level, we're not doing communion today. We're just gonna reflect. And we're also not going to do a kind of rile people up for an emotional experience because we want you to actually sit and meditate and reflect on where are you with this news that Jesus offers as good news. There will be an opportunity to respond later, but like we said, we're not in a rush to try to manipulate anything because the wind blows and things change. We're not in a rush. We know what that looks like. And it's better to make a thoughtful, and I'm gonna just give you the warning right now, the spirit will start rearranging things in your life, okay? Hello? Because what it looks like to recognize Jesus is Lord and not just a good man like Nicodemus was, just a teacher. What it looks like to recognize him as Lord means that he's in control, meaning that he's the one that determines what's good and what's, what's not good for me. And when I look at him, look up to him for him to save me, I'm recognizing, I'm saying that's all I have is my need. I might have all the degrees and the letters behind my name and all the things that everybody else looks at me from the outside and say, I want to be like you. But like me, you get to the end of yourself and you realize it's not enough. So there's a prayer that we want you to look at and to reflect on and uh, just say in your heart, I'll just read it out loud. It says, Lord Jesus, I need you, that need thing. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior, Lord, and King. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Help me to build your kingdom of righteousness and justice. In Jesus' name.
Amen. And as you think about those words, you don't have to respond in a public format in a forum, but what we do want you to really personally, introspectively, have an opportunity in a moment. So if you've never done that before, if you, maybe you got you were great raised in church and you got baptized at six and you know you're not really sure. There's no harm in praying this in a personal way today. But recognizing that that part of that last sentence that's not there by accident, like help me build your kingdom of righteousness and justice. Like this isn't just about a personal sense of piety. This is also about see Jesus. When it says Jesus is Lord, people at that time were saying Caesar is Lord the government, the Roman authority. And he's saying that, no, no. So this is also a political act as much as it is spiritual. It's it's recognizing that there's a greater kingdom than the kingdom that is on this earth that I live in. I'm a citizen of a higher kingdom. And I I am committed to building this kingdom. That's part of the call. And so we're just simply going to, I'll just pray and close this out and then the worship team will come and we'll just have a moment to just reflect on where we stand with being born again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us this space, you give us this moment to think about life, to think about ourselves and where we stand with you. Lord, we pray that you help us to swallow any pride Lord, I pray that there's someone there that they have so many questions right now that you would just allow them to come and bring need. Nothing else is needed, but that is what is required, a recognition, I need thee, and a recognition of that you're inviting us to come, come to the altar, come to respond to that which you've done in our lives but we look up at the cross and see that that is the means that as you were lifted up, that you did that so that we could be free. We could be born anew, born from above, born again. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.